I'm Tash McGill, and this is Faith in the Time of Corona with Newstalk ZB. A conversation about what is and is not newsworthy is ever-present in the New Zealand media, and therefore we have to ask questions about what relevance faith and religion have in the news, especially when clickbait and controversy seem to rule the headlines at times. And in some ways, all belief is religion, even atheism, in this post-Christian landscape. I wanted to talk to Russell Brown, an insightful and experienced observer of New Zealand media. He's a journalist, media commentator, and an atheist to talk about how he perceives the space for religion in the news. It was a poignant conversation, coming just two days after the announcement that Bauer Media were exiting the New Zealand market for good, leaving hundreds of journalists unemployed and continuing the shrink of media outlets. I I think what we saw this week with Bauer was uh, there's a sense in which it's been coming. Um, Bauer didn't particularly want to be trading in New Zealand and clearly decided that they didn't want to keep trading through what will be some commercial difficulty for the rest of the year, at least. Uh, and th- there has been a kind of existential crisis o- over journalism uh, in general, um, which is a revenue issue. Um, newspapers used to have all the advertising, uh, and particularly the classified advertising, which is what paid for things. Uh, you got right from about the end, of the, the, you know, the end of the 1990s, that income started to drain away, and it went to places like Trade Me. And what newspapers had treated as a birthright for a century suddenly wasn't there anymore. And that's the issue that we're still trying to deal with. How do you see that impacting uh, the representation or the opportunity for New Zealand's culture and history and stories and emerging ideas um, to find their way into the public space? Well, on the upside, there are um, so many more channels now for New Zealand stories and our ideas and our heritage to find <clears throat> to find their way to people. Um, one project that I've been involved with from the beginning that I'm really proud of uh, is Audio Culture, which is a New Zealand music heritage site, and that's a different way of telling our stories. Uh, that uh, arose as a sibling to NZ on Screen, which I was also involved with. So there, there are ways of, uh, of telling stories that didn't used to be available to us. I, I think the thing is now that we're all in niches, uh, the rise of the internet has made niches relevant and important. And um, maybe sometimes those niches don't talk to each other. Oh, I, th- I think that's very true. I remember as a as a teenager racing out the front door early in the morning to grab the newspaper before anybody else in the ho- in the household got to it, and I would um, somewhat uh, devotedly, you know, pour over every page, regardless of whether or not I was particularly interested in the content. Um, it all seemed relevant because it was all in the newspaper, and therefore it was somehow newsworthy. Um, and and a somewhat yeah, and, and also also it was all you had. Mm. There was only one version of the truth. This is um, this is very uh, true. You know, for for much of my life, the, the government owned all the radio stations, and there was actually a broadcasting regulation that uh, forbade you from uh, expressing controversial opinions on air. Uh, so there, there's been a process of adjustment over the last twenty, thirty years to suddenly this multiplicity of voices, and. Uh, it hasn't always been comfortable. There, there have been benefits to it and there have been drawbacks. Um, we also live, for example, in, in the era of fake news where people kind of create their own reality around themselves and, and 
it, it gets hard to, to trace back to any, any kind of empirical reality. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, that's, that, that is a particularly interesting challenge. Um, I, I was having a conversation with Jonathan Merritt from, um, from the United States, and we, we were speaking about, you know, the importance of the fourth estate um, and playing a crucial role in any kind of democracy, but certainly that is something that has, um, that's something that, that I think is more prevalent in a culture like the United States um, right now than what it necessarily is in New Zealand. You know, I, I heard an argument when I was in radio, uh, radio school for back 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 in the day that um, that deregulation had actually done more to harm the commercial viability and therefore um, and therefore the sense of independence of of radio and radio journalism and I do think that that yeah. go ahead yeah I, I think deregulation and the consolidation of ownership hasn't actually been a good thing and we've seen in the past ten years uh, or fifteen years a lot of regional publications go under. And it's happened quite often in circumstances where they might have been viable on their own. Mm. But uh, the big newspaper chains bought them. Uh, there were all these internal chargebacks, and they were seen as a revenue centre rather than uh, a, a publication for the local people. Uh, and, and it actually made it harder. Being uh, acquired by large media companies made it harder for these publications to survive. Uh, and we've seen uh, another side to the problems that, that consolidation creates with um, Bauer this week. How on earth did we have a, a fairly heartless German company end up owning nearly all the magazines in New Zealand? It, 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 you know, as recently as the 90s, there was a, a thriving magazine sector, it was an independent publishing sector, uh, and it did pretty well. And now all of a sudden, one company pulls the plug and nearly all our magazines are gone. And one of the things that, that, that stands out in particular, and it was interesting observing the conversation happening uh, in, in, in kind of the public conversation and in places like Twitter, as people started to argue the relevance or the validity of some of those uh, titles, you know, um, people who are up in arms about the loss of the New Zealand listener, which is, you know, 80 years worth of, of history, um, and publications like North and South, uh, Metro, that have that have often been, um, you know, sort of the, the thriving place for for long-form long journalism to reach somewhat of a broader distribution level than, say, some of the niches that we that we see emerging today. Uh, you know, to say that they are somehow more relevant or or, or better journalism than, than, say, you know, the Australian, uh, the New Zealand Women's Weekly or uh, Next Magazine or Fashion Quarterly. But my, my external viewpoint, and I think this kind of brings me into talking about the role that media plays in both the formation and also the, the reflection and education of a society at large is that is that as a whole those publications all say something about New Zealand culture about who we are and who we've been and, and you know and, and and potentially who we who we're becoming even the way that we interact with you know celebrity or tabloid journalism which hasn't necessarily always felt particularly comfortable or particularly uh, sophisticated what do you see yeah, yeah. and I, I think in particular the New Zealand women's women's weekly not women that's the Australian, uh, has, has both reflected and at times uh, been part of social change in New Zealand. And when you look at uh, who has been put on the cover at times, um, it, it, they, they've kind of led the discussion in that. Uh, and, they're, I mean, same-sex couples, for example, 
um, which might have been seen as, as edgy, um, they just went for it. And, and I think that has actually that has opened up the idea of you know who, who, who has a stake, who can be a New Zealander. Um, one thing I thought about this week with, with the Bauer News was uh, the, I've got both um, volumes of collected editorials of, of the great listener editor, Malty Holcroft, Mm. And they make fascinating reading because they're kind and they're consistently liberal and they're thoughtful and they guided New Zealand through a lot of change. You know, we're talking from the mid-50s to the late uh, 60s. And I've, you know, I've aspired to being that good. I don't know if I ever have been, <laughs> but I, I, I like that. That feeling of a voice that will be there, that will be a voice of measure, and that will talk us through these times of change. Mm. And and perhaps now, as we are facing, you know, an a previously unknown and almost unimaginable upheaval on a global scale, uh, it seems to me that that now is the time to be able to dive into or rely on some of that uh, opinion writing, some of that um, social observation, uh, some of that um, guidance, and, and also, you know, the, the stories of how we will uh, how we will pivot, how we will innovate, how we will recover, um, you know, not to mention how we will survive. Um, and, and it seems to me now that, um, that the diversification of some of those voices, um, you know, m- may end up in corners of the internet where actually it could greatly benefit the New Zealand public to have access to that kind of thinking and that kind of um, guidance and leadership uh, and, and yet the, the field is narrower and, and narrower. Uh, do you- yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think one voice, I, I, you know, I always enjoy hearing from in a crisis. I don't enjoy a crisis, but um, I, I do like uh, the voice of your colleague, Frank Ritchie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he's done a really good job of... of being able to go out and walk in the mainstream, so and yeah, actually have something useful to bring. Yeah, let's, so and let's I, talk I, I about think that. Real value in that. Um, so, I mean, your position is is one of. Um, would you describe yourself as um, as an atheist or uh, you know a, a non-believer or you know unreligiously affiliated? Or uh, what's the language that you would choose? Uh, I'm an atheist, but I respect belief. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'd love to know from your perspective. Um, you know, I'd love to know a little bit more about about why, say, the work of um, Frank Ritchie, who's you know a media chaplain and, and commentator in his own right. Um, what relevance you think voices like that have in the media space? Uh, I think with Frank, there's a stillness and a kindness and a humanity, and these are all things that you want to see projected um, out of belief. Um, and, and that's you know we we both know that's not always the case, <laughs> um, but the, you know it, it's the, it, even if you're not a believer, you might want a chaplain by your side at times. I think that's quite a good way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, and this is something I actually discussed with um, Mark Pearson, uh, who you may know one one of Frank's friends, uh, at a session we did at the Splore Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, Religious community um, has value as well. Community itself has value, and the rituals that that we undertake in different contexts. You know, um, me going to gigs. You know, uh, you know, that, that was kind of our church when I was young. You know, we had transcendent experiences. We were with each other, and I think we all find different ways of 
of achieving those things, and they are of value. We all want to feel together. Do you think, uh, my concern, so I'll pose this as a hypothesis, my concern is that with a shrinking media landscape in New Zealand, there is less opportunity to hear the nuanced or experience the nuanced conversation that uh, that the expression of spirituality or religion can bring to um, communities at large. Um, with with the constricting uh, scene, with, with a lack of representation or voice, um, it falls to to sometimes the lowest common denominator and, and oftentimes those are um, the more divisive and controversial um, aspects of religion that might make it to the news um, and I'm sure you, you understand my inference there <laughs> um, towards oh, perhaps... I know exactly who you're talking about and yes, it is a problem and um, I mean, and I'll get that, I mean people were surprised, a little surprised that um, I had an evangelical Christian uh, on my spoil panel, but I, I said no there's, I, I, I want to hear, there's lots there's lots to learn here, um, but the way that Christianity is modelled in the headlines is is often off-putting to people. Pe- people see it as threatening, uh, and you know we, we all know the personalities we're talking about. Let's not say the names again, but uh, uh, yeah, that is a problem. And I do wonder. Whether, I mean, we. I, I don't wonder. I, I know that we have lost something with uh, public media because what we get uh, in commercial media can often be of high value, but it can also be, as you say, the lowest common denominator. It is the thing that causes conflict and drives clicks. In researching for this podcast, I asked the question of people working in public relations and communications for various religious organisations and charities. There was a common theme reflected, a general sense of cynicism towards the media and a sense that the media don't necessarily think much of these religious organisations. Outside of the odd general collective letter of remembrance or condolence, such as in response to the March 15 mosque shooting, Generally speaking, there's a sense that some other stories simply aren't punchy enough to get traction in the press. And even when the story is a genuinely feel-good one, there's often the question of whether a religious press release is actually going to be a bait and switch. And when you have certain religious voices willing to blame earthquakes and pandemics on corrupt humanity or the judgement of God, those are blockbuster headlines that draw both shame and rage on all sides. It seems like a disservice to our society as a whole if we don't tell the whole story. Is there an opportunity for us to um, elevate the conversation? Is there an opportunity for us to explore in thoughtful ways, uh, you know, the the relevance of uh, spirituality and religious practice? And I think particularly, um, it it would be impossible not to. We are we are in a previously unimagined time in New Zealand where people are being asked not to conduct wedding ceremonies, not to conduct funerals. Um, we are poised on the precipice on the precipice of an enormous amount of both personal and and public grief should this virus you know over overtake us, and. And it seems to me that there's then a glaring hole or gap um, where actually, um, say, a more traditionally religious culture like the United States um, has a wealth of material ready to go that can feed into and comfort and nurture the public narrative. Um, and I have a genuine concern that perhaps those voices are not not as represented as they should be in the New Zealand landscape. It's sort of hard to see that those voices are represented all that well in, in the American landscape either. I know they exist. But again, you have the problem of, of, of what gets projected as, you know, uh, as belief. 
because right now in Florida you have the, the, the crazy mega church pastor who's gotten permission to have huge gatherings again and, and it's crazy and why, why are we doing this so um, it, it would be nice to see kindness and humanity reflected a bit more often are those the driving are those the driving values um, do you think of of sort of expressed belief um, you've talked a lot about you know that that belief in itself actually has something of value how would you how would you describe that that relevance or that import? Um, I think expressed belief um, will do best when it uh, it, it doesn't, it, you know, the, it's not castigating uh, the, the person hearing it, uh, and and, and yet it offers something to them. Um, I'm not quite sure how to, how to, how to phrase this, but but also I mean that. Society is better for me if it's full of happy people, and it's not up to me to uh, decide how people achieve that happiness and that peace. And if it works for them, I mean, my mother, for instance, um, has long held a um, a quiet belief, and it's got her through uh, some really, really challenging times in her life. And yet, uh, some years ago, we were standing by the road while a a, a certain church was... um, um, staging a fairly bigoted parade, and I remember her turning around to me and saying, "I don't like this." Um, so yeah, I, I guess that there's a sweet spot in there. Um, I, I want people to be happy. Uh, I'm interested in what they what they can bring to me out of that happiness. Is there a particular um, is there a particular moment um, because of your experience um, in in the New Zealand media over time? Is there a particular moment that that you can think of where where that expression of belief or or the voice of um, the voice of the the religious community has been expressed in a healthy way and has and has somehow benefited our larger story? I think we see it most often um, in the context of Maori spirituality, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it was interesting for for a while. The last iteration of our media TV show uh, was Media Tucky, and it was very interesting talking to Toy Eki about that. He said, "You Pakia, you don't believe in anything." And I thought, actually, yeah, maybe you're <laughs> you're probably right, and that there is something to be gained from cultivating a spiritual dimension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think in the rituals of Tangihanga, um, to take one example, we see that in New Zealand, and it's the most obvious and, and, and easily tangible um, uh, manifestation of belief. Uh, we, we do that pretty well here. I, I, I think, you know, if it's something that all New Zealanders can own, the, the idea of, of ritual at times when ritual is needed. I think that's a very profound thought, actually. I mean, a, a, again, given the context within which we're existing, um, is there a particular uh, is there a particular story or an aspect of where we are currently placed? Um, not just the the small localized economic impacts, but but also within the the broader global story of what's happening as this virus really turns things upside down. Um, is there a particular story or angle that that you are um, drawn towards or curious about uh, in terms of how this will play out for us? Um, 
like everyone else, you know, well, not probably not everyone else. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I watch the numbers, and, and there's a kind of a nerd fascination in that. And, and there's also a, um, a feeling that, that whatever happens out the other end, things won't and can't be the same. And I don't think we quite know what that new normal is going to be. Um, and that there are a lot of things now that, that looked, um, that you, you didn't seem that essential, uh, or didn't seem that sensible. And, you know, for instance, giving our poor people a little more money, um, you know, that now we have to reassess. Mm. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I, I write quite a lot about, uh, drug policy in a public health context, and it's, kind of interesting that we've had to uh, face up to those issues uh, with the whole, you know, the starting with alcohol and lockdown. What do we do about that? Do we do we withdraw that? Um, and I know one thing that's happened as a result of the lockdown is that objections to distributing uh, an overdose, an opioid overdose antidote called naloxone uh, have withered away because it makes no sense to withhold this. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you don't want people dying, and you and you don't want them taking up ER space. So, what are you going to do? Oh, look, <laughs> actually get this antidote out to them so that they don't die. Mm. And, and it's bizarre that it's taken this long, you know, even under a relatively liberal government, for that to happen. Yeah, it is. It's profound. How m- my reflection, I think, is that uh, religion. If if at its if if at its basis is is uh, humanity and hopefulness wrapped up in ritual, f- for want of a of a of a more complex way of saying it, but you know h- humanity and hope and ritual kind of tied up together. Uh, it, it seems to me that um, it seems to me that that those voices would have not just kindness and hopefulness, but also some pragmatism about what it means to be human in this time. Um, you know, to be able to to say things like, actually, l- you know, I've been fascinated to see some uh, some you know very uh, religious, um, very uh, you know perhaps right wing leaning um, commentators relent on their position on whether or not alcohol should be available during the lockdown, based on the fact that the that the potential um, the potential fallout of people going on mass into withdrawal and what impact that might have on oh. domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, there is there is kind of a, a bigger humanity that's opened up, um, which I hope, you know, I hope continues. And, and one would oh, like I, to I think... I absolutely agree. And, and Tash and I, and I absolutely understand what you're talking about. And that, 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 that is kind of what I was trying to express. You know, the, perhaps we can learn to be a little more careful about where we place our moral judgment. Well, and I, and and the foundation on which I mean, so much of that moral judgment is based on, you know, the the historic kind of Church of England missionary kind of grounding that that New Zealand had in the in the mid eighteen hundreds. That then kind of emerges and evolves into still kind of a you know a spectrum of belief, but a lot of it largely evangelical and Protestant. Um, and so mm. within that, you know, views on a lot of views on behaviour um, as opposed to say necessarily necessarily more driven by by belief and by practice you know what is what is good for what is good for humans what is good for society perhaps is more about um, an ethos and a philosophy than it is about whether or not you you drink or smoke or you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and and that kind of change is possible um, I've uh, had a 
little bit to do with LifeWise, um, mm-hmm. which I, I think a lot of people don't know is a Wesleyan charity. Right, yeah. And the reason that LifeWise is so successful is because they they greet people as they are. Mm. They don't they don't make moral judgments on people. They just want people to be well. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that really changes the way that you act. You know, it's a big one, and you know, as I said, in drug policy, um, you know, don't make moral judgments. Work at what what is the result you want. The result you want is for people to be happy and alive. Mm. So, what's the best way of achieving that? Um, and yeah, I, I've got so much respect for um, for them, and oh, I can't remember the, the Wesleyan charity in Porirua, um, uh has a, a similar ethos. And I, I think they're really effective. I, I think they work. Yes, I mean, and I think there are dozens of dozens of those actual, um, you know, their social services, their budgeting services, services, their food banks, their um, their domestic violence refuges, um, that are that are all operated. You know, a number of them are, are operated out of religious organisations, doing incredibly good and vital work. Um, but you know, oftentimes I think that 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 the relevance of that story gets kind of pushed aside um, or the, re- the, the the relevance of the, the religious connection gets pushed aside, um, you know, by an assumption that perhaps the New Zealand public don't want to hear that, that the work of those organisations, whilst vital, is associated with, you know, with a religious organisation. But I don't yeah, know... No, if and th- you may well be right, yeah. I, I think you're right there. I mean, it's interesting because off to the side of, of LifeWise, there is still ritual and celebration. Um, you know, the Auckland Street Choir is a really good example. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, I, I just love what happens there. Uh, and it's for the joy of singing. Yes. And the joy of community. Mm-hmm. And those things are powerful. They are. They they truly are. There's um fa- a fascinating book that I that I read last year called um, Your Brain on God, um, and it was a scientific study into the 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 very um, practical physiological implications of rituals such as community and group singing, uh, meditation and prayer, uh, and and what that actually does to the physiology of the human brain, um, particularly uh, in in developing the the size and strength of the amygdala, which of course is you know related to that very primal. Um, fight or flight function, uh, and I think it's it's fascinating how um, you know, a, a, as you say, if we're talking about what does it mean to be happy and to be alive, um, some of those some of those rituals, some of those practices are actually a really vital part of um, of creating and sustaining and nurturing happy and healthy people. And perhaps we shouldn't be you know so afraid of uh, whether or not whether or not the religious affiliation is is scary or unnecessary. Um. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they are important and they're valuable um, in whichever way that they happen to um, manifest. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that maybe they'll they will have an explicit religious dimension. Maybe they won't. And, and, and in a way, it doesn't it doesn't matter that much because these things, doing these things together, is good for us. Um, uh, an old friend of mine who now works for Apple Computer in the US, uh, who was uh, always the brightest kid, um, <laughs> used to think a lot about these things. And um, he settled on Quakerism mm. because he, um, he, you know, he he couldn't bring himself to to believe 
but he saw all the value of kindness and community and getting together. And um, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, that, that these things can manifest in many different ways. I think where I where I land is 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 always that I think those sorts of stories, right? Very unique, very individual, um, but somehow applicable on a on a broad scale to who we are as a society, are important. And I think that they need to be that they need to be heard. Um, they deserve to be mm. heard. And I think we're better when we actually have the opportunity to to see that more nuanced view of our society. Yeah, and and actually one um, one change that I have seen um, is the way that churches, uh, going back to death again, um, <laughs> handle funerals. Um, the churches are much more welcoming places for uh, people with a variety of beliefs at these times when we need them. Mm. Uh, and the, you, you can swear in church these days, you know, <laughs> depending on you know who the deceased is and who's being talked about and what, and you know, what you're trying to express, there's a much wider range of expression, I think, uh, now fits in, inside a church. And, and that's really marvellous. Um, when a friend of mine died uh, two years ago, I gave um, the eulogy, and, and it felt good being inside a church. Mm. Yes, I think there there is something that there is something that will change uh, irrevoc- irrevocably um, the idea of these sacred spaces that have been uh, that have been spaces devoted to ritual, um, spaces that are devoted to you know certain certain universal human experiences such as you know births, deaths, marriages. Um, that 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 will be very strange to think that those spaces will not necessarily be available to us for the next four weeks or six weeks, and and maybe the way that we view them, um, you know, will be changed forever. Um, and I think that's both, an, you know, an interesting opportunity for uh, again reflection on what does that mean for us as a society, but also a, also a fascinating thing to imagine. You know what the future might look like um, as we as we determine new ways of of engaging in some of those rituals. Um, yeah, you're right because we have we've had all those things that be rather rudely snatched away from us, mm-hmm. um, and we're scrambling around a bit, and we're all anxious. And I don't know about you, but um, we I've tried to have one um, one mates get together. You know. Um, on Zoom, and then we tried house party, and that didn't work very well either. And it's, it's actually not not quite the same thing. Um, so yeah, the, the, all all these things that we have expected to be there, all of a sudden aren't there and won't be there for us for um, for some time to come. Mm, mm-hmm. I do I do wonder, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this as we as we come to a close. Uh, I wonder if the conversation inevitably will will turn from simply looking at the numbers of of uh, of uh, covid-19 cases and l- looking at and talking about the economy and how we will you know open back up for business and what will we do with the borders etc cetera, etc cetera. i do i do wonder at which point our our narrative as as a as a culture will will inevitably have to turn towards what is this what what is happening to us as a society as a result of that you know um 
I, I hope that we don't see, uh, you know, a vast increase in, in death, but we will see, I think, you know, a vast increase in loneliness and, and mental wellness issues. Um, because as you say, you know, uh, getting together with a, with a group of friends on Zoom is not the same as that close interpersonal, you know, connection. Um, and that's, that's again where I think, you know, it will be interesting to see how the public narrative um, shapes and moves. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I do think we need a sense of us as a whole, uh, and and that's actually important for, for sustaining ourselves at the moment, um, because we are all off, you know, we, there's a sense in which we're all spinning off in our respective directions, and everyone is, is processing their anxiety in public, certainly on the internet, in a different way, and I think we've got to be forgiving of each other and forgiving of ourselves in that context. Uh, and eventually try and move past it. But you're right, there will be some collective sense of ourselves required to get through this successfully. You can connect with Russell Brown and his work at publicaddress.net, and he's on Twitter, at publicaddress. Next, I speak to Frank Ritchie, a Newstalk ZB broadcaster and an ordained minister who offers chaplaincy to New Zealand journalists. I'd love to hear your stories. You can connect with me online, at Tash McGill. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it and subscribe. This series was made with the support of New Zealand On Air as part of the Easter programming on Newstalk ZB.